David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot. If you're listening to this podcast, that's because you are one of our subscribers at Patreon. And you make not only this Patreon-exclusive content possible, but everything that we do at Conta, from our articles and podcasts to public meetings and much else besides. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and extend the thanks of everyone at Conta for making what we do possible. Uh, it's just the way it goes, I suppose. Right, uh, so the Labour Party, how do we talk uh, through this? Jesus Christ, I've been <laughs> trying to work on this one, I'm sure, like <laughs> yourself, for a long time. Um, so it's up to you. I'm happy just to focus on the article or, or whatever questions you have. It's something like, it's one of those things that since I moved over here in 2009, um, <clears throat> I think I think it's probably I think it probably helps coming to Britain and British politics from the outside, um, but I've been struck by the sort of gravitational force of of mm-hmm. the Labour Party and the influence it exercises. But even more than that, the lack of understanding of it from within the ranks of the Labour Party and the Labour Left, like the complete ignorance of <clears throat> the history of their own party, of, of its active role, like what it did in government and in opposition since its foundation, but also the theory and the ideas around it. So for a couple of years, in different ways. Of, been involved in campaigns and groups um trying to do the political education stuff which is part of it but also and i i taught this even during the corbyn period that to develop any sort of serious socialist politics in britain you have to break the social base of laborism like you have to you have to find a way of rupturing with that in a serious and sustained way um and with the defeat of corbynism that point has been driven home even more because in terms of the sort of genuine um, sort of existential threats and deep-seated crises that are unfolding and the challenges we're going to face in terms of cost of living, climate breakdown, growing inequality, declining labour standards and so forth. The idea that a large section of the British left, and I use that term sort of expansively and inclusively, the idea that a large section of it will spend their time within the Labour Party or in and around the Labour Party trying to carve out some space for Andy Burnham to come in as a leadership <laughs> candidate and possibly something. It's just, it's just abysmal. So, yeah. so the piece I wrote was, was just sparked mainly because of the Wakefield uh, stuff when the, when the Tory MP, uh, Wakeford, is it Wakeford? Yeah, Wakeford. Uh, when the Tory MP crossed the floor and joined the Labour Party and the one, the sort of entirely predictable, um, gleeful welcome he got from the Parliamentary Labour Party and from many of the Labour Party, but the performative um, ignorance from the Labour left and sort of, you know, on social media and so forth, gone, but they can let a Tory and they can give the whip back to Jeremy Corbyn. And this is this is goes against their values. And I was just sort of looking at that going, but you either think this. And that's terrible because that's not actually, <laughs> that has no relationship whatsoever to the world of politics, the existing world and reality of politics, or you're feigning this sort of, you know, uh, incredulity, mm. which happens time and time again. Starmer's done this thing, but when he ran for election, he said this thing, and I can't believe it. I was like, well, if you can't believe it by now, you've got a much bigger problem. Like, <laughs> like you're just not grasping the basics of what's going on. So I thought, right, I'll write this short piece because, again, the debate came up when the Tory joined, should, should socialists be in the Labour Party? And so I just wrote that piece. Um, I've been working on a longer term project trying to think through uh, the history of, of sort of laborism and the social um, conditions that supported it in the first instance, but then reproduce it even now. And it's gone through various mutations. I mean, there's a whole specific aspect to it now linked to the uh, so, sort of subcultures of the online left and so forth. So that plays a specific 
role now, but historically the role that trade unions played in sustaining it, historically the role that sort of the, the brief period of, of, of uh, welfare statism allowed it to sort of be reproduced in. So I do think that is a massive challenge for all of us. In terms of, and, and there's obviously more of a challenge in England than it is in Scotland and even Wales mm. to some extent. Um, but I do think that because it's a, a sort of parochial reflection of a broader politics of reformism, so in some ways you get some of the same problems, albeit in a different you with the SNP and stuff like that, even though the SNP is of a newer vintage that focus on elections, that idea that you can just lay hold of the state and turn it into the more progressive project that you want to do, and that complete lack of understanding of if you're interested in socialism, of the wider terrain of the struggle and the wider terrain of fight. So that's what the piece was about, trying to trying to cover all that. So I don't know if there are specific questions you have in relation to it or yeah, well, okay, so so I mean you've kind of covered it, some of it there, but could you just uh, remind our listeners um, just a bit the basic critique that, uh, of Labourism that you outline in the piece? Yeah, so so obviously um, the the thing with Labourism is, is as a concept and as an idea, it's been understood and been critiqued by the broad left within Britain for most of the last hundred years in different iterations. I mean, even at its foundation, <clears throat> when when the various uh, factions of the ILP and the Fabians and so forth came together to form, form the Labour Party, there were left wing Marxist critiques of this new project but particularly uh, after the forced labor governments um and particularly then after 1945 through the 50s with people like john savile then into the 60s and 70s with people like ralph Miliband, and into the 80s david coates and others there's always been a consistent and coherent left-wing socialist or marxist critique of the project of laborism and the most striking thing i find is uh, how little the category of the idea is understood by those people that are most immersed in it now it's not that surprising because one of the aspects of laborism is an antipathy to theory you know it sort of presents itself and understands itself as a hard-nosed realism you know what i mean that yes we're socialists we want fundamental change but we don't want any of this yeah i mean historically it would have been this nonsense continental theory stuff you know I mean? we want we want practical politics on the doorstep winning people over and getting concrete changes right so the, the, the fact that it's not understood and not interrogated within the ranks of people on the broad labor left isn't that surprising so with the piece i wanted to set out some of the key uh sort of um elements that compose the politics of laborism and the reason i wanted to do this was uh, to try and um refine the nature of the debate that going on as to whether or not socialists should be in the Labour Party. I'm sure you know Amilcar Cabral's old expression that, you know, uh, tell no lies and expose lies wherever they're told. And it's not so much that people are lying about the Labour Party as such. I mean, obviously, people are, like Keir Starmer and so forth, are lying about the Labour Party. But there's just a complete misunderstanding of the nature of the politics people are engaged in. And so what happens is the Corbyn moment is defeated and the Corbyn opportunity is defeated. And the refrain after it is, well, this was because of sabotage from within and because this person a traitor and this person who we thought was left-wing turns out to be a careerist and they're a traitor and they're a sellout but next time round we'll be better organized and we'll have better candidates and we we won't make the same mistake <clears throat> and the point or one of the points of the article was to say that you misunderstand the very nature of the politics it's not so much that stammer is a traitor or that stammer is dishonest although he undoubtedly is dishonest it's the nature of laborism as a form of politics to produce this narrow focus on elections this narrow focus on capturing the levers of state power and this top-down understanding of social reform and because of the structural character of that politics you will inevitably get the same pattern repeated over and over and over again uh, tom nairn i think it was 
in his sort of piece from the 60s on the, the nature of the Labour Party, he said there's no movement that has ever produced so many, in scare quotes, traitors as the Labour's tradition, because it constantly happens. And because people are locked into the understanding of it as this interpersonal betrayal and this interpersonal failure, they fail to grasp the structural nature of the politics. So the fourth key point I wanted to make in the article was that if you're interested in socialism, if your politics is a socialist politics, and we probably have to have a discussion about what we mean by socialism, but if you want to advance socialism, trying to do it through the Labour Party is a sort of Sisyphean struggle of the highest order, that it's an, an institution and a set of uh, structural political practices that militate against the advance of any sort of meaningful socialist project and always have done, not because this person or that person is a cello, but because of the nature of that politics. And so if you are interested in socialism now and building socialism going forward, then the Labour Party isn't the place to do it. And we had to break with that and start to build the alternative. So that was sort of the key argument, I guess, or the key trust of it. Yeah, and, and I think the piece got a bit of traction because as it was coming out, there, there were a few things that happened that sort of confirmed that analysis. One was uh, Laura Pidcock, who was one of the people, I think, in the Corbyn experiment who is generally accepted to have acquitted herself well in a, in a yeah. principled fashion. She uh, sort of just said, well, there's no point in me spending my time in the NEC, which is the, the ruling body of the party, and which, of course, had just refused to readmit Jeremy Corbyn uh, to the whip. Um, and I think that that may have focused some minds that, look, if you're saying you cannot conduct this fight even there, yeah. in supposedly a position of power in the party, um, then then really what is the, the point of, uh, of this fight going on in, inside Labour? Um, I just see as well this morning uh, that Paul Holmes, mm -hmm. who's the leader of Unison, has been... Uh, <laughs> Uh, victimised, it seems, from his job in Cutcleys Council, and there you, you have another kind of clear example of uh, of what you're talking about. You can either consider that an aberration, mm -hmm. you know, this is one of them, you know, this is you know, this is supposed to be the party of the unions, and here they are uh, actively persecuting, not just from a, a political position, but from his own job, mm -hmm. um, uh, a, a leading member of the Labour movement. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, as you say, you know, examples of this are absolutely uh, rife. Um, of course, I mean, some of the arguments made in, in um, defence of, of the Labour Party are, look, it's the nature of the electoral system. There's no way out of this. It's, it's fast past the post. It's unlikely to change. Um, I mean, what's your what's your answer to that argument? Yeah, so I think that's a really, I mean, it, it is a key point, and I sort of I wanted to, to touch on it in this article and, and quite consciously to sort of um, invoke and paraphrase Thatcher that that this is that there is no alternative argument. So so if you're interested in any sort of progressive change, uh, socialist politics, that the only the only vehicle is the Labour Party. There is no alternative, and I think this is where it comes back to the the, the question of definitions and again understandings of of capitalism of power within uh, capitalist society of uh, building alternatives to capitalism where this comes to the fore okay if you understand politics primarily as contesting and winning elections and even then within the narrower uh, focus of winning elections to westminster parliament then absolutely the lab labor is the only electoral vehicle that allows for some sort of vaguely very loosely termed left political alternative but that's a very impoverished vision of what socialism is. And this is, again, Ralph Miliband and others have made this point, but even before Miliband, people like Hal Drape, but you go back 
Matthew Marx and Rosa Luxemburg and everyone else, that this is a very impoverished vision of what socialism is, right? So, so if socialist politics for you, which again is very much in keeping with the with the laborist tradition, going back to the Fabians, the Webs, and the sort of intellectual influence they still exercise over it, if it's about getting good, well-intentioned technocrats into positions of power within a presumptively neutral parliament and then enacting some limited social reform for the toiling masses, then fill your boots, labor's the place for you, right? But if instead your socialism is about some form of challenging the capitalist systems, challenging the extant social order in a more serious way, if it's about empowering working class people, and again, laborism is wedded to this nostalgic idea of the working class, the sort of Durham Miners Gala, in a, which is brilliant, Durham Miners Gala is brilliant, but the romanticization of it and the sort of flat caps and the particular accents and so forth, but actually no real interest in building independent working class power, no real interest in empowering working class people through rank and file trade unionism, through sort of uh, protagonistic social movements and so forth. And so if your understanding of socialism goes beyond the narrow focus on elections, well, then labor is absolutely not the place to develop it. In fact, it, as I argued in the article, and I think as a lot of people are coming to realize, it's anathema to it. Because if you're going to be involved in movements, let's say at the moment, the Kill the Bill movement, which was, um, which was you know, really important and and, and sort of valuable recent movement and has had some uh, important successes in terms of influence in the House of Lords. The House of Lords, I don't think, would have voted against the proposed amendments two weeks ago unless there had been this mass movement against it. But the Labour Party is uh, agnostic on the bill, you know, or at least it's sort of tinkering around the edges and not really opposing it. So if you're involved in campaigns to oppose the increases in repressive state powers and to impose the expansion of the police state, or even to oppose this uh, borders bill that's coming through, which again is a massive attack on migrants and a massive attack on sort of people who want to support and, and help migrants. If you're involved in those campaigns, then you're invariably against the Labour Party which supports all of these measures to one degree or another, because the Labour Party is fully integrated within the British state system and the reproduction of the interests of British capital and the British state. So if your politics goes beyond just elections to a socialism that is about empowering working class people, building independent working class organisations and developing serious alternatives to the capitalist system and to the, the genuine existential crisis we, we, we face. And again, I think there's an awful lot of uh, hyperbole around these days because of social media, everything gets exaggerated. Well, if you look at the scale of the climate breakdown that we're facing, it genuinely is an existential threat. I mean, even the OECD, which is the furthest thing from a sort of left-wing think tank, the OECD produced a report last year about the growth of protests around the world, and it identified unambiguously and unequivocally climate breakdown as one of those key drivers of these protests, and climate breakdown is this very real existential threat. And there's a wealth of other scientific literature on this. And if you think that fighting the internal battles to get a seat on Labour's NEC or to get a sort of, you know, minor motion passed, I think. If you think that's going to change anything, it's a willful ignorance because you have to know, even without studying the theory and the history, you have to know from the last four or five years that the PLP calls the shots within the Labour Party. And whatever conference says and whatever the NEC says and whatever the membership might say in petitions, the PLP calls the shots and the PLP is fully integrated in the status quo and won't change a thing. And if you think in the face of all the crises we face that your energy is best served trying to win some minimal paper victories within this electoral vehicle, you're not advancing socialism, you're reproducing the myth of the laborers project and there's a much bigger set of fights to be had and i think again that 
I think where we are at the moment with the scale of the crisis we face, that the obligation is on all socialists, in, as I said, in England more so than in Scotland and Wales, because Labour has obviously less, I mean, Wales still has some traction, but much less obviously in Scotland, but particularly in England, the onus is on socialists to be building the independent socialist and working class organisations that are not only outside the Labour Party, but are actively antagonistic to it, not in a sectarian way or anything like that, but antagonistic to it because of the structural role of the Labour Party and of Labourism in sustaining the status quo. I suppose uh, another argument um, that's sometimes used in defence of the Labourite project is um, these kind of national specificities um, of, of the British uh, condition. I, an argument that's perhaps slightly eroded in recent years because of changes in Scotland and Wales and so on, as you, as you say. But, you know, people can say, you know, critiques of, of Labourism, they'll argue, though you've already said, you know, there is a strong British intellectual tradition of, 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 of critiquing Labourism, but they'll say, look, um, you know, we're not France or Italy uh, mm. or Ireland, or we, we have a very specific body of political traditions and political mm. cultures that are, are a powerful kind of bind on, on politics in Britain. And parliamentarism is one of the really strong mm. political traditions that we have here. Now, it's, it's somewhat easier to argue from the standpoint of another kind of national experience or a more general experience of class politics. Um, or as a, you know, they'd say in a system where you don't have first past the post, re and re realistically, and this is where you get all these arguments about sort of uh, in and against the state, yeah. which is always uh, a slogan that kind of makes me giggle a bit because it's, yeah. Something used as a slogan a lot, but I've never really found out what it means or yeah. how you're going to do it or whatever. But anyway, um, you, you, it means that we need to adapt the socialist project to a parliamentary mode, and that's unavoidable in the, in the British context. How would you answer that? So, so two things on that. First one, on the in and against the state one, a very specific point on that. So, so when John Holloway articulated that idea, John Holloway and others, but John Holloway was the main sort of driver, when he articulated that idea, it was very specifically about people that worked in the civil service. So the question was, how do you, as a working class person in the civil service or as a teacher, how do you... Uh, reconcile your role of being in the state and against it Um, it was then sort of broadened out to be this much vaguer idea of well we have to take up positions within the state and then go against it and that that latter version invariably just means being in the state you know there's, there's no against it in any meaningful sense there's no serious ruptural politics associated with that and interestingly in a recent they recently reissued uh, the book that was the uh, that published a new edition of it and john holloway explicitly said in the preface to it that he doesn't agree with the formulation that was articulated during the Corbyn moment so so the in and against the state thing is a very um is you know a very problematic concept but on that thing about specificity i think i think the point i think there's two points of that and two important points with that uh the first one i think is it's based on a very uh, narrow and a very truncated understanding of british history uh, and even just of english history and uh, so obviously it goes without saying that in scotland wales and Ireland, when Ireland was fully occupied, there were obviously, uh, and still are, radical movements that were linked to the nationalist tradition, but also more broadly, working with John McLean in Scotland and James Connolly, who we took from Scotland, but we claim him in Ireland and so forth. So it's, there has been this radical tradition. But in Britain, actually, and it's really interesting, Theodore Rothstein has a, has a great book, which he wrote in the early 20th century, which is called um, From Chartism to Labourism. And he basically ties the growth of Labourism with the defeat of the working class, right? So uh, you look at the 
British working class tradition. And you go back to the diggers, the levelers, the ranters, but more importantly, and more crucially, the Chartist movement. And when Rothstein talks about the Chartists, he says that these are effectively the intellectual and political forerunners of the Bolsheviks, that the Chartist movement, a working class movement of, of serious radicalism, a working class movement that was about the serious sort of rupture with the existing electoral, political and social uh, relationships was a forerunner. And he, and convincingly, I think Rothstein argues that Engels and Marx learned a lot about their conception of class politics from the Chartist struggle. And even in the fourth volume of Capital, when Marx notes the defeat of the Chartists, he still notes that the Chartists were an exemplary uh, sort of model of what a working class revolutionary politics could look like. But yes, absolutely. <clears throat> the Chartists were defeated. Uh, the whole sort of um, generation of, of sort of 1848 was defeated. You know, that, that revolutionary moment was defeated. And then Labourism emerges in the ruins of that, in that sort of period of economic boom you have in the late 19th century where British industry is, is sort of flying thanks to colonialism and so forth. And you have the emergence of the new trade unions, which are very much the sort of um, professionalised unions of the sort of aristocracy of labor and how they make common political cause with the liberal party and how this then is the is the sort of um, starting point of of the modern labor party so that absolutely for the last hundred or so years in britain there's an entrenched model of domesticated class struggle you know what i mean so domesticated in the sense that the the sort of main expression of class antagonism takes place in the electoral terrain in the contest between red and blue you know for the most part with the with the lib dems playing a smaller part um so that's definitely part of the British tradition, but it's only one part of it. So I think if you, if you just focus on that, you exclude an entire rich tradition of, of, of British radical history that is important. And I think it's one of those things sometimes people try to mobilise progressive nationalism in England as part of that. And I, I've always argued that you can't do that. But what you should do is you should sort of uh, reclaim and sort of repurpose the radical working class tradition that there is in Britain, that genuinely is there. And people are aware of it in vague sort of ways when they have commemorations every year around Peterloo and stuff like that. So, so the knowledge is there and uh, it's just about sort of um, sparking that and pushing it forward then in terms of where we are now I think again this idea that well Britain only does electoral politics and I think there's a lot of truth in that and again it's something we have to reckon with we're not gonna with the best will in the world we're not gonna turn around next month or next week and have a, a sort of network of Soviets spring up from thin air and form a, a sort of counterpower within England or within Britain more broadly right with that said uh, we have the objective conditions now right we have the objective conditions of declining real wages mass dissatisfaction with the existing political process and this goes back beyond COVID. So Peter Mayer wrote his book, Ruling the Void, uh, back in the early 2000s, I think, or the mid-2000s. And he showed, which again, this OECD report confirms the disengagement of the vast majority of people with electoral politics, the sort of two-way drift of people withdrawing from mainstream politics and mainstream political parties withdrawing from the people, becoming more elitist, more technocratic, more focused on sort of media and spin. So you have that sort of, and, and sometimes this is picked up on in mainstream literature and the sort of crisis of legitimacy of the British state or the crisis of legitimacy of British politics. So we have the objective conditions where there's a palpable anger, frustration, distrust amongst vast swathes of people. Now, one of the big problems we have is because the British left for a whole variety of reasons, and this is both the Labour left and the extra uh, parliamentary left has been um, in a state of, of decomposition and dissolution for the last 30 years, let's say. You might, again, you can start the clock at different points for different organisations. But because of that, 
in this vortex of social upheaval and social breakdown, it's the right that has taken the initiative in the form of Nigel Farage and other people who have offered people the sort of easy answers, the sort of snake oil salesman stuff about migrants, about culture wars and so forth. And Samir Amin is an Egyptian Marxist. He made this point years ago. He said, in the absence of progressive utopias, people who are beaten down and, and sort of disillusioned like this will retreat into reactionary ones. And unless the left can offer people a serious vision of a genuine alternative to the status quo, and can engage with people where they are, can take that anger, can turn it into something productive, the right will do it. And this is what the Corbyn moment did for a brief period. Again, I, I'm not a Labour Party member. I joined it very briefly to vote for him in the second coup election, and then I left again because I, I, I've never had any illusions about the Labour Party. But the Corbyn moment was important and intimately linked to Brexit because in the British context, both of them were a sort of incohate, confused search for an alternative from a vast mass of people. And then the thing was that with the Corbyn project it was domesticated and Brexit played an important part in that and how the status quo and how the right of the Labour Party and the soft left of the Labour Party uh, sort of collapsed in the face of the sort of reactionary middle classes clamouring for a second vote and overturning the vote and so forth and because Labour fell into that sort of uh, position of supporting that effectively reactionary position it was impossible in 2019 to present itself as the insurgent radical alternative that it looked like in 2017 and so Corbynism was beaten obviously long before December 2019 so I think, again, the short answer that this idea that, well, we can only deal with this way in Britain because that's how we are. One is based on a narrow and very selective reading of British history and two misunderstands the nature of the crisis we're facing now and the opportunities that it presents for developing new forms of politics. Yeah, I think that the point about chartism devolving into, into labourism uh, is an interesting one. Incidentally, it was... I always kind of transpose that argument onto what happened in Scotland after mm -hmm. 2014. The defeat of the independence movement yeah. was very pluralistic and had its real kind of radical outgrowth and, and a real kind of popular energy. The defeat of that led to the SNP hegemony. You know, that, that was very much a retreat from those horizons and into quite a defensive form of nationalism um, and so on. And that's really what solidified an increasingly conservative SNP, you know, ever, ever since. So you can, I mean, it was fascinating to, to me, knowing of those theories about the relationship between Chartism and Labourism, to see a kind of small modern version of how that actually happens. Yeah. I mean, uh, in Scotland, it was, uh, you could visibly see it. So the, the saltire flag wasn't, became the dominant image of the uh, of the, that movement only after the defeat yeah. you know what i mean it was it was literally that visible um an expression of the kind of psychological change and and it, it made me think yeah you can almost kind of imagine that development on the level of you know you go from this huge vibrant mass chartist movement into a movement where it's all about professional representatives and electoral politics and um and and, and so on um you raise an interesting uh, point about Corbynism because I was in the same boat I, yeah. never been you know never having come from a Labourite tradition always been very, very critical of it but what what I thought was interesting about Corbynism was that it was successful to the extent that it broke from Labourism mm -hmm. and it was a failure to the to, to the extent that it returned to Labourism yeah. and I think really in, in its kind of insurgent phase up to the 2017 election um, I've always thought Corbyn was an interesting personality himself because he struck me as kind of the least Labourite of the left wing of the Labour Party. I'd always I'd always associated him with things like the anti-war movement, 
uh, with his solidarity campaigns with socialist movements in Latin America. So already the internationalism, the international focus of his politics removes him from that Labourite tradition. It makes him, puts him in stark contrast to someone like John McDonnell. Yeah. Who was never as um, I mean he's you know he, he he has an international international politics of a sorts but he's always he's so obviously much more in that labourite tradition yeah. much more institutionally involved in that labourite tradition and for a time it was apparent from Corbyn's language that he was appealing over the head of that labourite tradition yeah. to a much wider sense of disillusionment in society and yeah. to that kind of populist rhetoric that people associated with and which I think they always think there should have been much more of. And only really came out in glimmers, like during the the election campaign. Um, yeah. So for I think from about from about twenty seventeen, you saw Labourism really reassert itself, and particularly through the People's Vote, um, which again, classically, the Labourite tradition can't deal with constitutional issues. Yeah. There's a sense in which it's very apolitical. It won't yeah. do with the form of the, it won't deal with the form of the state. It won't do with the, deal with the form of rule class rule in society. Um, weirdly, uh, and this is one of its kind of characteristics, there's a real kind of syndicalist bent to, yeah. to the British version of social democracy. Real politics is when we talk about um, wages and public service delivery, right? Well, no, actually, not so much wages. Public yeah. service delivery, right? Because they don't have a really good record on wages either. Public service delivery, you know, people want good working schools, and that's all working class people care about, schools, yeah. hospitals, um, etc. It's a very kind of paternalistic um, mm-hmm. model. Uh, working class people don't care about politics. They yeah. don't care about Scottish independence. They, they're against that. They don't care about Brexit. They don't care yeah. about the European Union. Don't know what it is, yeah. right? They don't need to worry their little heads about the European Union. We'll think about that. We're the professional politicians. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really think you could see the more Labourism reasserted itself, the more obviously it crushed the, the more radical impulses that were in the Corbynite movement and ultimately just damaged the whole project yeah. um, and, entirely. And as you say, it just did make me think, I mean, it was watching the world's slowest car crash. Yeah. yeah. And, and just saying over and over again, can you see what they're doing to you? They're yeah. absolutely killing you. Yeah, I mean that was one of the one of the most terrifying things, and and I'd say not just not just the Labour left, which was which played a big part in it, but even large sections of the British left in general around Brexit, the the absolute sort of poverty of analysis and discussion around the whole Brexit period, which again is 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 down to the decomposition of the British left, which has been ongoing for a, a long period of time, but but how the whole Brexit debate just got reduced down to us oh, racist and 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 if you, if you don't like racism, then you have to oppose this. Da, da, da. And I remember because I was involved in the left campaign, I think make trying to make the point that look, you have to understand the structural character of the crisis we're in. You have to understand what's happened here with this vote. And again, whatever you thought before the vote after the vote to be pushing any sort of rejoin the EU, run a second vote from a so-called left-wing perspective was a fundamentally reactionary position to adopt. Because again, once, like I mentioned Peter Mayer, and we have seen in Britain and elsewhere this massive decline and sort of constant decline over the last 20, 40 years of people engaged in um, in sort of political, political processes. But Brexit was the single biggest the exercise of a democratic mandate in British history and there's the numbers of people that voted you might not like the result right but to then turn around and go people who voted for this are idiots the people who voted for this don't know what's what's good for them the reactionaries are going to die off and that'll be okay we can get ourselves back into Europe was, was abysmal but this goes back then to this whole understanding of politics so with, with, with the Labour Party 
And with the Corbyn moment, that I agree with you about the reassertion post 2017 uh, of the sort of Labour tradition. But I think even at its peak, I think Corbynism never properly broke with Labourism in in full. Because um, again, one of the key strands of the whole Labour tradition is the illusion of unity and the the illusion of having to maintain party unity. And it's only ever the left of the Labour Party that has understood that or has embraced that as a principle. The right has had no qualms about destroying it and so even Corbyn and others uh, balked in the face of the internal uh, constitutional reforms they would have needed to do in order to be able to discipline the PLP in order to be able to make it accountable to the membership they lost their nerve Corbyn and all of his supporters lost their nerve on that because they wanted to maintain party unity and again it was just as you said I, I was the same as yourself watching it and it was like they were in the middle of a fight and had no understanding of it you know they were literally getting punched and kicked in the face and they were trying to have this sort of reasonable negotiation about it and I think that Absolutely, the people's vote was central to it. But that, again, it sort of just reiterates all these key points about Labourism, because the, the calculus within the Labour Party, within the Labour left there, wasn't so much about how do we develop a politics of rupture here, a serious politics that might advance any sort of socialism. It was how do we construct and maintain a feasible electoral coalition? What's the midpoint we can find that will keep everyone happy? The sort of working class who we want to do nice things for, who might have voted for Brexit, but the angry middle classes who are out on their people referendum second vote marches and so forth how do we bring all them together so it ended up being this sort of tin pot electoralism trying to force a coalition but then ultimately a capitulation to where the labor party is as a political force which is representative of that sort of middle class public sector worker strata of sort of society and capitulating to their interests as opposed to the broader uh, more sort of um, expansive understanding of what was required to develop a radical politics but yeah again it's one of those things that in terms of not learning the lessons you can see it again now i mean even in, even in the face of of what's gone on with corbyn and again it's funny because during the 2017 18 yeah, I, I spoke at a couple of labor party branches in london and elsewhere mainly on brexit there were debates about brexit and stuff and at all those meetings at different points in the nicest possible way i used to try and drive home the point to people that jeremy corbyn seems like a very good person a decent principled person but this isn't about him and it shouldn't be about him and it should be about the political opportunity we have but again going back to the politics of laborism more broadly because it is linked to the idea of people as the passive recipients of politics that happens to them there was this sort of uh, reification of corbyn on the left not a cult in the way in which the right talk, talk about it but a sort of personalization of the whole project and i support jeremy and i'm on his side and instead of then doing the necessary work around political education around building sort of trade union networks or activists and sorry networks of trade union activists building and supporting community campaigns the focus was on supporting jeremy within the labor party and, and now that jeremy has been roundly defeated in the Labour Party the focus is still on getting the whip restored to Jeremy or leaving the party because of how it's treated Jeremy and others and again this shows that the massive failures of and, and the sort of the gravitational force of Labourism as a form of political practice excuse me because even some of the groups that have broken off from it I think of the Northern Independence Party for example or other groups it's effectively Labourism without the Labour Party you know so all the politics is essentially the same there's a slightly different twist on it in terms of a focus on, a focus on regionalism or whatever it is but the essence of the politics hasn't shifted it's right how do we build an electoral vehicle where we get decent people in who will implement the policies we want and the focus is still elections still capturing the, the levers of the state and that is the extent of the success or the extent of the sort of corrosive 
opposite influence of Labourism, that that's how it's impacted the political scene here. So again, part of writing this article, and because I've written uh, for Contair in the past, I'm trying to think about rebuilding the left and so forth. Part of it is trying to shift the orientation and sort of say, well, look, okay, we, we understand elections are important. That is definitely something we have to deal with. But to sort of borrow the phrase from Miss Van Mazaros, that capitalism is the extra parliamentary force par excellence, and the socialist movement has to be adequate to that. So that absolutely elections are something we have to think about. But until you have a social movement that has deep and, and, and sort of genuine roots in trade union struggle, in community organizing, and has done serious political education, you're just going to keep repeating the cycle of this traitor, this savior, this traitor, this savior. And we have to break out of that. So a, a couple of points on this. Um... Uh, you know, thinking about the modern context, some of which you've discussed in terms of, um, uh, you know, ruling the void, you know, yes. Peter Mayer's ideas about, you know, the retreat of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of yawning gap that now exists yes. between elites and, and, and the ruled and so on. I mean, what underpins all of that, of course, is the retreat of class struggle. Um, since the 1980s. I mean, you, if, you, if you want to kind of look at the figures, I mean, I think, I think Eric Hobsbawm wrote, the forward march of Labour halted in the was it 1976 or something 77 something like that. So we're now we're now talking about a long time ago, and this has been a long run process. Um, I mean, I wonder. I want to ask you first of all. I mean, a lot of the um, classical critiques of Labourism. Um, do you think that they have held up in that in in that context? In this in this sense, I mean, one of the things that annoys me about debates about contemporary Labourism is. Like I'm not, I don't really think it's social democracy anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you hear a lot of arguments about the Labour link, and, and people say, well, this this makes it what Lenin called it a hundred oh, years God. ago, yeah, you know, yeah. bourgeois workers' party and all that kind of stuff, as though nothing has changed in yeah, yeah. in that period, as though as though the class composition and size of the unions hasn't changed, um, as if the relationship between Labour and and the working class hadn't changed. So in the time when someone like Ralph Miliband was arguing about Labourism. He was up against it in a in a he was in a, up against a more difficult argument in the sense mm-hmm. because social democracy up to that point um, it had had a real um, it wasn't it wasn't truly like a mass working class movement in the mm-hmm. sense that you know chartism was for example yeah. mm-hmm. but it did have very deep uh, and emotive roots in working class communities mm-hmm. I mean I often think about my grandparents uh, you know like coming from essentially, you know, slum-like conditions in, in a Glasgow Irish mm. area, living through a period when the Labour Party was constructing houses, building the NHS and the welfare state and so on, mm. their emotional attachment to that project, I think, was very real, very considerable and very understandable. A friend of mine who remembers the Labour Party from, from the 70s told me, and I had no idea of this, that the Labour Party used to have a successful network of newspapers that were delivered around the doors in working class communities yeah. all over the country, you know, and with huge print runs and so on. It's an un, it's an, an unimaginable level of um, uh, sort of political organisation and networking when you look, when you consider politics today, when none of those organic relations actually yeah. exist. So, I mean, do we, do we, in a sense, need a new critique of Labourism now that it's really a kind of liberal centre-left party without those sorts of social democratic relations <clears throat> to the working class. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And I think all those points about the the, the transformation in both in terms of the, 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 the composition of the labour force, in terms of what work looks like in Britain. So absolutely, for all of its many faults, the Labour Party did have 
strong formal links and in some places strong organic links to uh, well-established industries and working class communities so whether it was around mining communities whether it was around industries of heavy industry where you had tens of thousands of people employed in the same industry living in broadly the same area with shared cultural experiences and so forth that definitely was part of it i think I think two things. I think one, yes, we need an updated critique of of laborism, an updated reflection on what the laborist project is in Britain today and what what that means, and linking that both changes in Britain but also to the global trend, to the sort of global uh, tendency towards pacification and what that has meant, the sort of world historic defeat of social democracy, of those ideas from the Second International and those political bodies that represented that. But I also think that, um, and I'll come back to that fourth point in a minute, but I also think that the change circumstances further underscore and further uh, sort of vindicate the critiques from Saville, Miliband, Coates and people like that. Because again, they were they had this critique of the Labour Party when it was at its height, you know, when 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 sort of the uh, trade union membership was three or four times what it is at present. You know, what I mean, we had these relatively stable uh, networks of working class uh, sort of communities and organisations and on all of this sort of uh, what, what term um, I've forgotten the guy's name, Canadian author, but the idea of the infrastructure of dissent, this broader infrastructure of dissent that existed around sort of working men's clubs, around uh, community church groups, choirs, these newspapers, where you had this much broader uh, infrastructure they were critiquing the labor's tradition in a sort of prescient and correct manner then so to try now with this sort of hollowed out shell of an electoral vehicle to try and salvage some sort of social project and think we can turn this around now and make this a social when it couldn't have been done back at its height when it couldn't have been done in the 60s 70s and 80s how in god's name could it possibly happen now when trade unions are you know bureaucratized and sort of in retreat and when and trade union density is, is sort of at its lowest um in sort of since records have begun in that in that respect so i think we do need a new critique of it but i think also the old critiques still hold for the essential points and i think with writing this this short article for Conterra, one of the points was just to sort of excavate those arguments again and i'll make the point that this isn't this isn't something i have stumbled upon this isn't my insight i haven't found this out i haven't pulled this out of thin air this is a well-established critique of it so to re-enter the sort of politics of well, stay and fight which again the fight never actually materializes it's just stay in the labor party and advance the socialist project through winning this election here or that election there and claiming that these positions are positions of power it betrays an understanding of the nature of the party today but also is, is conducted in complete ignorance of this long tradition of critique and sort of clear-sighted understanding of the nature of the labor party in terms of what a contemporary critique of it would mean i think that's absolutely true i think we <clears throat> excuse me in the Labour Party, um, it's, it's peculiar compared to other social democratic parties around the world, in part because of the force past the post system and, and the role that that plays in sort of artificially sustaining the Labour Party uh, in the face of, you know, the sort of secular decline of social democratic parties around the world. And then there's also the shifts that have been brought about by technology and particularly for the Labour left, the specific sort of online and offline subcultures that exist and reproduce themselves in a sort of performative pronouncement of a radical politics of socialism accompanied by the practical participation in the most sort of tepid reformist politics imaginable um i sort of i was trying to think it through and i'll sort of i want to try and write more on this at some point because it's not just in the labor party but right across the anglo left and i'm sure elsewhere around the world you've got this experience of people who are sort of subjectively rosa luxembourg but objectively friedrich ebert you know what i mean like that in their heads uh, they'd be storming the barricades and leading the challenge when time was right 
but their actual concrete politics is the is the reproduction of this absolutely exhausted electoral relic of of sort of social democracy and i think that there's a whole set of you know um social media and other mechanisms that reinforce that also the personal again i, I touched on it just in one line in the article but there are a lot of people and i've not had this experience the experience they've had uh, from a very young age being in young labor going to the labor party conference meeting boyfriends and girlfriends and partners and friends through the whole labor milieu and it's hard to extract yourself from that so you might just kind of you know have you might actually have no illusions about the politics of what's going on but you're so embedded in the system you're not budging and then there definitely are although i think we shouldn't overstate this but there definitely are the sort of material and career incentives that keep people in there now a lot of the new media that sprung up around the corbyn uh, moment is fundamentally wedded to the labor project irrespective of what labor is doing this new media which purports to be communist or socialist or whatever it is is linked to that project and has to speak to that project and the interest of the people around that in one form or another and um, so there are these material sort of inducements and links that hold people there and these personal ones and i think there definitely needs to be an updated critique of it but i do think that these older critiques are important to be aware of and still hold true and actually even more true given the change circumstances yeah i i mean i think it speaks to as you say a whole nexus of economic and class problems you know it's, it's often been said and i think there's something in it about the corbyn project is that it, it came to kind of over represent the experiences of a very specific part of the population yeah. um to which I, I suppose for example i belong which is mm. um young people who uh you know are graduates from university um have expectations that they've adopted from their parents generation expectations which have closed to them you know entry into certain parts of the economy um you know how you know buying a house and so on now i think that any coalition of in socialist politics should be able to appeal to people who are frustrated by not being able to get ahead yeah. you know, even if that's just on the level of like the reproduction if you like of the middle class or whatever i don't think that's a problem if you look at the history of the socialist movement there have always been people like that involved yeah. in it and traditionally um the <laughs> the socialist movement has been an alliance of um the working class you know sections of the working class with sections of sort of the disintegrating middle class or the proletarianizing middle class or whatever um the problem i suppose is that with the extreme weakness of working class self-organization it's very easy for the for the kind of latter part to become very culturally and intellectually dominant and to mm -hmm. kind of run away with itself in a sense. And I think you saw some of that around uh, around Corbynism and, and a kind of losing touch with the wider social experience of society. Um, but yeah, and th there's a few things with the deterioration of left-wing traditions, such as, you know, there's sometimes you have to be isolated. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's always something that I was told involved in the socialist movement is, it's not always a mark of dishonor that yeah. you are in a small minority. Yeah. Um, it's not always a mark of uh, futility that you have to be patient. Yeah. You know, um, the, the, there's the, the, the moods in left-wing politics, and this goes not just a thing for laborism, but you know, whenever uh, you critique from the left, the the, uh, the government in Scotland, for example, you get the same thing. Yeah, but mm. who are you? Yeah. You're completely marginal. Your yeah. criticism doesn't matter because it doesn't represent anyone and and and, and yeah. so on. Another kind of very anti-intellectual uh, yeah. take on, on politics where what's true is, is what's represented in the parliament. What's yeah. true is what receives the most vote on a given day, on a given election day and so on. That's, that's the highest kind of um, political uh, uh, truth. And the problem with that is 
And I'm thinking about how people, because we're talking about how people left, what was really quite a substantial movement, you yeah. know, I mean, in 2017, almost 13 million people voted for Corbynism yeah. against the expectations of the entire British establishment and against the expectations, of course, of the, the Labour Party establishment as well. Yeah. Um, which has a very condescending and negative attitude about people's political horizons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a party that built up over a half a million membership, a lot of them very new to politics and so on. Um, and I think without those sorts of moods, without that deeper intellectual tradition, without that deeper tradition that, that accepts that there are times when it's necessary to be marginalised and, and mm-hmm think seriously how to escape about how to escape that marginalization what i'm seeing is a lot of just rapid demoralization yeah. and people just saying what's the point we're trapped yeah. you know we can't get a labor government that's left wing so we're so we're fucked yeah. the other thing i have seen though and i wonder if we could explore this a bit is as soon as after 2019 when people started to pick themselves up again i saw a lot of people sort of saying and in some senses this is you know it's it, it's uh it's a healthy instinct but i saw people saying look, uh, Labour's fucked, let's go to the trade unions. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, at least you're not just saying, well, fuck it then, you know, there is actually something we can go on and do. But it struck me as well that this was another uh, sort of unclean break from Labourism. Yeah. This, and Because you also see now people saying, look, do your politics in Labour yeah. and then go and join a campaign group or a trade union. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like this. This is this again of this sort of split personality of socialist politics in Britain, I think, is something which has always underpinned Labourism. The idea that there are essentially two forms of political activity. Trade, yeah. go and join a trade union in your workplace and uh, and then turn up and vote for Labour every few yeah. years. Yeah. Right? And that's and that, you know, uh, voting Labour plus trade unionism equals socialism, yeah. um, which I think is another kind of very impoverished uh, view of socialist politics. But I think it does pose a challenge to those of us outside the labour aid tradition, which is, um, can we create a model of specifically socialist politics, yeah. a, a principally, a, a primarily extra-parliamentary politics, yeah. which can appeal to people? Yeah, so the last one's the big one. So I'll, I'll circle back to that in a minute. But on, on, on the other points, I agree completely. So um, as it happens in, in the piece I wrote for Conter, with the, like, with the pandemic and everything, I've lost track of the years, but I think it was early last year, uh, I wrote a piece for Conter called Building the Road, which was sort of about how we rebuild or, or try to rebuild, I think through rebuilding uh, socialist politics. And I sort of picked out that trend that you uh, that you noted. It definitely was. So, so one thing to note, uh, which has been confirmed recently, it's somewhere in the region of 150,000 to 200,000 people have left the Labour Party since Starmer uh, came to power as the new leader. And even before that, a big chunk left in the sort of latter stage of the Corbyn project. A lot of people left and joined the um, the Workers' Party GB, which is a terrible sort of um, thing built around George Galloway's ego and, and a few other sort of small groups that sprung up. So, so people were leaving already, but they really left in droves post the uh, ascension of, of Starmer. So that's definitely happened already. And you're right, for some people there has been this language of, and I think even within the trend you identified as the sort of splits and divisions, there's some people who said, right, well, fuck Labour completely, we're just going to do trade union and uh, community organising stuff, right? Which again is the real danger of sort of uh, overly romanticising the 
and reifying that type of politics and becoming a sort of uh, voluntarist pseudo-anarchist type politics which, which disdains the idea of like having, having been sort of diehard electoralists in the Corbyn moment suddenly goes you know uh, full circle and, and rejects it outright then there is this other trend which has always existed which is yes stay in the Labour Party as a passive member keep your you know your whatever the monthly subscription is uh, and keep your votes there stay there and, and leave it to us the active Labour left we'll do the politics vote for us on the NEC and stuff like that when that comes around but you do that trade union and community stuff the thing with that is that's always done with an eye to the Labour Party still as you said it's an unclean break and it's interesting you see Unite for example which with Sharon Graham is showing a really potentially uh, hopeful sort of new development trajectory in terms of the, the focus of the union at the upper echelons although again you know Sharon Graham isn't a grassroots candidate she's, but she is a very good uh, new general secretary of the, of the Unite party but even within Unite they have a future leaders program right and that isn't how do we build militant trade unionism and class fighters it's who of our active members might want to be Labour MPs in the future and might want to stand for election for the Labour Party. So the Future Leaders Programme, understood from the perspective of the trade union, is to, again, feed back into uh, the Labour Party. And likewise, very many people, I'd say, even without without being cynical i think they do it in in sort of you know in all honesty and in all sincerity look at social movements look at campaigns local campaigns around housing or schools look for organic leaders within that not to support and develop the movement but think that person could be a candidate for labor and that would be good and then of course if anybody who becomes a candidate for labor would invariably not because of their personal failings but would invariably be sucked into the whole vortex of labor's politics with all the discipline and processes that that entails so there has been that development and i think that momentum is a good example of this uh, of that sort of duplicity and that sort of incoherence so uh, just very recently in the last week or two i think funnily enough around about the same time that the nec refused to restore the whip to corbyn they made a big announcement that they were going to have a new tier of membership uh, where you could be in momentum without being a Labour Party member. Uh, so they acknowledged then that lots of people don't want to be in Labour, but they would still say you should be part of our left project, uh, as it were. So on the one hand, that implies that we understand politics beyond electoralism, we understand politics beyond Labour, and we understand social movements, trade unions. Right? And I think some people in momentum probably do. And then it was either the same day or the very next day they published this thing with much fanfare, which was a sort of calendar around a map of every election that was going to happen in the next year internal and external and that's the truth of it <laughs> you know so the whole sort of we're going to have extra parliamentary members but again the focus will still be on labor was belied by the reality that came out the next day which is here's what to look out for and organize for all of these internal and external elections and so i think that even people if in all sincerity they think i'm going to stay in labor passively but i'm going to do this other stuff they invariably find themselves getting pulled into time and time again the time and the energy and the commitment for the next internal election the next sort of reactive fight against something the right within the party is doing the next sort of local elections campaigning for candidates they don't actually you know have any faith or belief in and so forth so i think that 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 um duality within the labor party will remain and i think that any project whether it's momentum whatever it is which is umbilically linked to labor is fundamentally uh destined to, to sort of fail because of this these pathologies of, of the laborist tradition and labor's politics in terms of what do we do outside it well this is this is where it's it's undoubtedly the big problem right and again i i moved to britain in um i moved to england in 2009 
And at that point, the sort of radical left in Britain was already in, in sort of decline in, in important ways. Um, I was involved in the Tusk campaign in Leicester, where I lived for us, because it looked like a you know useful, positive you know initiative of, of a broad left um, uh, project. But that's, you know, people will be aware of the, the problems that Tusk has had and everything's gone on. The SWP, which again, I, I would have had disagreement with the SWP's politics even before it, but then I had that particular crisis that happened uh, and it's been in, you know, sustained by elderly members with um with good pensions ever since i think but it's sort of you know hobbling along as this zombie organization the independence campaign in scotland was that sort of bolt of optimism and um, the radical independence campaign uh, showed some really sort of uh, amazing potential and and I, th I think part of it was lowering the age of vote voting as well and engaging young people and it was it was, it was fantastic for me to see that because again coming from the Connolly tradition the the real danger of any sort of national question being torn into this narrow nationalist focus which the SNP embodies is always there but to see how the independence campaign at that time made it a much bigger debate about what do we want Scotland to look like not just constitutionally not just separate from England not just independent but what do we want Scotland to look like and that vision was was so important and, and inspiring but genuinely since then we've we've been in the doldrums as it, which is part of the reason why the Corbyn project attracted so many people from the broad left because it was it was something it was tangible it was real it existed but again, the biggest problem there was you can't just, this goes back to Lenin's critique of the state in key respects and Marx's critique of the state, in the same way in which you can't just lay hold of the capitalist state and turn it to your own purposes, you can't just lay hold of the Labour Party and make it be a socialist project. But unfortunately, because so many people were so desperate and so disorganised, they joined in and, and heavily invested in the Labour uh, Party and the whole project around Corbyn. And now we're out the other side of that, where there's there's two options for people, realistically speaking. The one is to embrace the fatalism of the labor's tradition, the fatalism that there is no alternative and just sort of stay in there plugging away and winning little victories and having the performative radicalism of, you know, posting the pictures of all the books you bought from the Verso sale and having a hammer and sickle in your social media profile while every single day reproducing a tepid reformist social democracy uh, in, in your politics. Or you can take the step of politics with absolutely no guarantees. You can take the step, whether it's in the form of uh, rank and file trade union organizing, whether it's in the form of uh, recomposing a, a sort of radical independence campaign in Scotland, for example, or in Wales, whether it's in the form of uh, tenants unions, uh, broader community organization around sort of mutual aid, around providing food, building community gardens, uh, and I think crucially political education. I think having serious debates about, because there's no, there's no shame in losing and there's nothing wrong with losing. Uh, it, it doesn't feel good and it doesn't leave us in a good position, but not learning from your defeats is a fundamental and unforgivable political problem. And without doing serious political education, we won't overcome that. We won't even recognize it. You know, as I say, with, within the Labour's tradition, again, it's because these people who were the full-time workers for Labour were sabotaging the project. Or these people did that, you know, Braden, well, what was the structural determinants that meant that this form of politics was always going to fall short of any sort of social project? So for us on the extra parliamentary left, I think we just have to take a whole range of uh, disparate and discrete initiatives to begin with. But again, we are going to have to coalesce it into something more coherent. We have to bring those sporadic and, and sort of independent uh, campaigns and movements together into a unified, what Marta Harnicker calls, political instrument. We have to act in a way that allows us to coordinate amongst these struggles. And like at the moment, a good example of it is, a good example of what the problem is, is the Kill the Bill uh, pro uh, protest and movement, which has been really good and really positive in lots of ways, but hasn't had the active and sustained support of trade unions or of the sort of the existing left 
left political organizations. And we need to find ways of breaking down sort of some of the traditional barriers of sectarianism, but also some of the nonsense that comes with contemporary sort of moralism and, and versions of liberal identity politics, where you exclude people because they don't have the exact same position on whether it's trans rights or sex workers rights or whatever it is, that instead we have to understand if we're going to build a extra parliamentary coalition, we have to have a couple of key things we agree upon. There's other stuff we can trash out going forward, but we have to build a movement. And the thing here is that there's no alternative for us than to actually do the work of doing that building. And we, we can't know, we can't gain say exactly what it will look like. So I don't have a model. I don't have a prediction about exactly what form it will take. But what I do know is that if we don't take the steps concretely and Conter is a, an example of it. Um, I do work with a group in Manchester called the Beehive, um, which is about political education and work with other groups. But if we don't take those concrete steps to start building the alternative, to start to sort of um, start the process of euthanizing laborism from the outside, if we don't start making those steps now, well, then, as the crisis before us unfolds, and it is a genuine, serious, systemic and existential crisis, as that unfolds, it's the right that will take the initiative and the right in the form of um, the right of the Tory party with the sort of right wing Keynesianism and sort of, you know, reactionary nationalism or the right in the form of a Labour party, which again would engage in forms of right wing Keynesianism with also a reactionary nationalism or new forms that emerge like UKIP and organisations like that. It's the right that will take the initiative and will offer people these sort of superficial alternatives unless we start to build and offer a genuine Anyone socialist one? Just, just lastly, because I think since the Portuguese election, I don't know if you've seen the outcome of that. These arguments have again kind of arisen that there's a return to centre-left politics, and I can imagine that one of the one of the kind of coping mechanisms after the collapse of Corbynism might be people saying, "Look, that, that there's things worse than than manoeuvring for a new mm. social democratic consensus," and mm. which, as I've said, I don't really think it is social democratic. In, in Europe, I think I can already see some of that complacency sinking in. I mean, uh, these centre-left parties, which, as I say, I don't think you can describe as social democracy, what do you think the future of this is in Europe? Because I could well imagine, incidentally, that, like in Germany, like in Portugal, like in Spain, they're already coming into difficulties. Um, there could be a resurgence of... It's not... I don't think it's beyond the, uh, the, the imaginable that Starmer... Mm eventually forms a government, though he's got very, very serious problems, one of which, which is just never addressed, and I never really understand why, is that um, it's very hard to form a Labour majority without Scottish seats. Mm -hmm. um, that's as big a loss as 2019 was. Mm -hmm. um, but I can imagine circumstances under which there's perhaps a Labour government perhaps supported by the SNP, and, and that would that would mean other kind of developments come into, pro, into play as well. But my assumption, and I just want to know if it's your assumption, is that um, it won't last. Like, mm -hmm. if even if there were a resurgence of centre-left parties, they will continue to discredit themselves in power and will re-enter a cycle, presumably an even deeper cycle, where um, the kind of populist, nationalist kind of right um, makes a resurgence off the back of those, of those kind of feeble centre-left administrations. Yeah. So I think I think that's I think your last point is crucial there. So just in terms of the Portuguese election, I haven't followed it closely enough. Um, the most recent result, just purely because I've been uh, have, have a teed and toddler. So I haven't really slept much in the last year. <laughs> so I haven't, I haven't followed that closely. My, but recollections from the last few years of what's gone on in Portugal was that in a funny way, um, the, the left in Portugal was an unwitting uh, and unexpected um, beneficiary of Brexit uh, in the sense that there are um, 
demands that the European Commission uh, has placed on centre-left parties elsewhere in Europe, and Greece being the most obvious example, but uh, also in in sort of uh, in France to a lesser extent. But um, there are demands that the European Commission has pushed in terms of austerity, in terms of placing limits on public spending and so forth, that they were holding back on against the Portuguese because they're in these delicate Brexit negotiations and they didn't want to be seen as the big bad European Commission doing big bad European Commission things. I also understood, and again, I, I'm, I'm not as familiar uh, as I'd like to be, that the actual coalition between the communists in Portugal and the centre-left had been sort of breaking down over a whole range of issues. So I don't know enough about that. But on the bigger picture of the centre-left around Europe and around the world, absolutely. So so Biden in the US as a centre-left uh, example, uh, the Portuguese example, absolutely, and potentially in future a Labour government. But I think two or three fundamental things are at play here. One, as you say, these centre-left parties will continue to discredit themselves. The French uh, left had an expression around the time of the last presidential election, which was vote Macron now and get Le Pen in 2022 or 2020, whenever the next elections are. Now, basically, they understood that going for the lesser evil now paves doesn't doesn't defer the greater evil. It literally paves the way for it because you'll get this sort of um, technocratic, uh, authoritarian, left liberal sort of political formation, which won't do anything to affect the fundamentals of the economy, which won't do anything to dramatically address the, 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 the challenges that people face, will in fact embrace a lot of the authoritarianism that you associate with the right. Uh, and then in, in that case, we'll just sort of see the restoration of a more extreme right wing version subsequently. And America is an interesting example as well because the biden government is is sort of um presiding over uh growing inequality the biden government is currently in court to defend uh trump era immigration policies which they're seeking to continue so they're doing pretty much all the same policies with a slight you know a slightly more professional or slightly less embarrassing media aesthetic but the, the politics remains the exact same and the uh, intimations are that actually the next time around trump or something in the trump mold will be what we can expect in the u.s presidential elections so I think in Britain, we could see something similar. You would see a Labour government, which, and again, the, the, the sort of voting record of the Starmer government in the face of uh, Tory legislation over the last year, so it gives you an indication of what you could expect. You would see a Labour government, which is tough on immigration, which is fiscally responsible, you know, which, which sort of acts in the interests of capital, as all governments have to uh, in this day and age, which was repressive as well, you know, as repressive as the Tories. And again, it's something I'm, in my sort of day job, uh, I'm, I'm trying to finish off an article at the moment, which is about the current policing bill, but trying to situate that in a global context. So the current policing bill in Britain it's often presented as this is post-Brexit Britain, or this is awful Tories being reactionary. But if you look at the entire sweep of sort of Western democracies over the last 20 years, this sort of legislation has been coming in and variations and it's been coming in pretty much every state around the world for the last 20 years. And the reasons for that is that for democratic capitalist societies faced with the structural structural crisis of capitalism that we're that's unfolding at present have two choices one to make the necessary changes that would challenge the root causes of it so to actually you know uh, tackle uh, the, the, the sort of logic of capital accumulation to socialize property to do all these things which of course no state is going to do or two to police the consequences of that crisis and that's what we're seeing right across the board so the policing bill is just the latest iteration of that and all the other legislation the uh, spy cops bill the overseas operation bill the borders bill these are all aspects of this authoritarian torn, which is a necessary concomitant of the deepening crisis of capitalism. So even if you do get a centre-left government in any of these countries around the world, you'll have 
broadly similar social policies. You might get a modicum of redistribution that you might otherwise not have seen under a centre-right government, but the fundamentals will remain in place and then the crisis will deepen. And I think this goes back to actually then talking about how do we build an alternative. It goes back to understanding the relationship between the sort of uh, political and the social for want of a better term. Uh, and again, to go back to James Connolly, Connolly uh, expressed once uh, an, an insight that was common to the socialist movement in the early, late 19th, early 20th century, where he said the fight for control of the political state isn't the real battle, it's the echo of the battle, right? And what, what that expresses is an understanding that capital strength within the contemporary world isn't because they've got a right-wing government in parliament or because they've got a centre-left government in parliament. it's because they own the means of production they own the mechanisms for us reproducing our lives and for the working class to challenge that we have to exercise control over those means of production so again going back to the Mazaros point about capital being the extra parliamentary force par excellence we have to build a social basis for a political representative sort of political manifestation which would be fundamentally different to the status quo in the absence of that social basis, you can sort of move the chairs around on the deck in terms of centre-left or centre-right, but you get fundamentally the same journey, you get fundamentally the same politics. And so the challenge for us on the extra parliamentary and social step doesn't change. Again, if we can clarify our understanding of the nature of capitalism, the nature of power within capitalist society, the relative order of priority of elections versus other forms of organising, then we understand the challenge we face and we can get to doing that work. Okay, Paul, thanks very much. Uh, it was thanks a good conversation. Uh, and it would be good to chat again in the future. Yeah, anytime. And thanks. And keep up the great work with Conte as well. And uh, thanks for publishing the article, too. <laughs> yes, man. Thanks very much.